Wars don't end happily. Not ever. Often, relationships that were central during war dissolve during peace. Some people who were brave and fearless in war are unable to handle peace, feel disconnected and confused. Other times, people in war make the move to peace very easily. Always, people die in wars. And always, people are left shattered by the loss of loved ones. Here's what doesn't happen in war. There are no wondrous climactic battles that leave the good guys standing tall and the bad guys lying in the dirt. Life isn't a World Wrestling Federation smackdown. Even the people who win a war, who survive and come out the other side with the conviction that they have done something brave and necessary, don't do a lot of celebrating. So, you don't like the way our little fictional war came out? You don't like Rachel dead and Tobias shattered and Jake guilt-ridden? You don't like that one war simply led to another? Fine. Pretty soon you'll all be of voting age, and of draft age. So when someone proposes a war, remember that even the most necessary wars, even the rare wars where the lines of good and evil are clear and clean, end with a lot of people dead, a lot of people crippled, and a lot of orphans, widows, and grieving parents. K.A. Applegate Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. When we're kids, our parents tell us stories that end with, and they all lived happily ever after, and some of us never grow out of it. Many audiences expect happy endings, where the bad guys lose and the good guys win and the hero gets the pretty girl. But in this episode, we're talking about the opposite, endings where the good guys lose, the pretty girl dies and nobody really gets what they want. With me today is horror writer G. Emerald. G, why do you like bleak endings? Well, thank you so much for having me on. And the reason why I enjoy bleak endings is because that's life. I grew up in a very medical household and I've worked in medicine mm. most of my adult life. So medicine is the ultimate of bleak ending because you don't always win. Like death eventually does win because that's a that's what happens. And to be frank, right. I feel like bleak endings just represent life better. Right. Gosh, I, it's funny. I also grew up with, with a doctor in the family. And man, the stories you hear, it's it's a bummer. It's like, so what did you do at work? Like, well, a guy died. Yeah, <laughs> like, there was a lot of that. <laughs> sometimes you can't do it. You, you could be the best doctor in the world. But like, human mortality is a thing. You can't win sometimes. And it fucking sucks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess with our backgrounds, we both have this, uh, this, this fondness for bleak endings. But for me as a writer, too, this topic is near and dear to my heart because 
I often write bleak endings and I've gotten some complaints for it, that my stories are too depressing or that it's not fair. I've heard that before. This isn't fair. That character deserved happiness. And I've seen a lot of genre writers, uh, like editors and fans, say that stories with sad endings are unfair or gratuitous or mean. I've heard it called misery porn. And I really have to object to that because when I write a sad ending, I have a very deliberate reason. I'm not just being a jerk. There's usually something I'm trying to say or there's a reason I'm doing this. So why don't we start a little bit by talking about... And that was my cat. (laughs) (laughs) They like to be in the podcast too. So why don't we start a little bit by talking about sad feelings, negative feelings. They're not bad. They exist for a reason. Now, when I first invited you to get on this podcast, you mentioned something about toxic positivity. Do you want to talk a little bit about toxic positivity? Sure. Uh, Toxic positivity, in case your listeners don't know, uh, it's just mainly you know, like sending good vibes and think positive and you know, everything will be happy. It'll all work out in the end, whereas it just buries all of your negative emotions like, hey, I'm really concerned that I don't have a job or something. And, you know, how am I going to eat or pay my bills? It'll be fine. That that doesn't help. <laughs> right. It doesn't help. And... I mean, I think there's a reason that we evolved to feel negative emotions like sadness, like anger. They're unpleasant to experience, but we have these for a reason. Like, the kind of organizations that ask you to suppress those emotions, cults ask you to suppress those emotions. Because that negative feeling, that like fear or anxiety or feeling like something here's fucked up or I don't want the leader to have my wife. I want my (laughs) wife. Exactly. Like those, yeah, those feelings are there. Are those, they're telling you something's wrong and get out of it. And if you are stuck in the situation where you can't address it, that obviously that's fucking horrible. And sometimes you do just need therapy, but sometimes like you, you need to listen to that feeling, to that anxiety, to that anger, because it's, it's, it's a gift in some ways. It's like there to tell you, get the fuck out of here. This is bad. Absolutely. There's, we always hear about like women's intuition and things like that of like, you know, something's wrong. I should not be walking in this dark alley or whatever of this is dangerous. Let's get out of here. Right. Right. And suppressing these natural emotions, natural emotions like sadness is actively harmful. I mean, sometimes you're going to feel sad no matter what, but trying to suppress it, say something like grief, can be really, really, really awful. And a lot of times when we try to suppress these emotions, instead of like dealing with them and confronting them, we end up falling into some really bad habits. We feel shame for perfectly natural feelings. Maybe we pick up some like harmful habits, like, I don't know, drinking or cigarettes or something like they're there for a reason. And and it's okay to feel them. And it's okay to listen to them sometimes. Absolutely. They are very often hallmarks of like, hey, something's not right. Let's let's dig into this and let's fix it. Right. And and I think for this reason, there's a reason why I personally get along way better with horror people. <laughs> like most of the horror people, like horror writers that I've met are cool and normal and, and, and chill and like <laughs> functional human beings. Whereas the, the YA, the cheerful, upbeat, optimistic, young adult, like middle-aged readers are total monsters. Every single time, they're complete <laughs> monsters. 
you think they wouldn't be since so much of YA is like dystopian literature, but you know, here we are. Right. Right, but they gotta have the happy ending, and the heroine gets not one but two very handsome boys to choose from, and she always gets a handsome boy. Ugh, so lucky. That's not what my dystopia looks like. Uh, same. <laughs> where where are my two handsome manservants or whatever? Yeah, I want two hunks to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> I want one to make me bread and cake and the other to, I don't know, wrestle or something. I don't know. I don't get, I don't get those. I got, I have exactly zero hunks fighting over me right now. <laughs> They're reading so much dystopian literature, like to an aspect that, that there is some horror to it because it's dystopia. It's yeah. terrible. Like we're living in dystopia right now of the pandemic and et cetera. Right. And I, I, don't understand why they always think, yes, everything will have a happy ending. Like, have you looked outside lately or scrolled through social media lately? Because it's a hellscape. Yeah. And and I think that sort of toxic positivity can be actively dangerous. We're seeing that right now in the pandemic. These countries that had uh, that sort of toxic, positive, unreasonably optimistic attitude toward it didn't really take the precautions they needed. And as a result, death rates were so much higher like the UK really had this like, oh, we'll be fine. So did the US and early on Italy and the death rates are fucking horrifying. I mean, doctors in Italy were having to choose who say who lives and who dies. Exactly. Like, and that's horrifying on its own. I can't imagine having to be that doctor. <laughs> yeah, because they had like basically a chart like, okay, over the age of blah, 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 you know, he doesn't get the ventilator. He has this many con genital conditions. Sure. It, it's just horrific. And I mean, it was necessary in that instance, but no one wants to, no one wants to do that. No doctor wants to do that. Exactly. And to right. make them choose to do that or to force them to make that choice is just horrendous as well. And that's exactly right. where we're in the U.S. right now. <laughs> right. Whereas there were other countries that didn't have toxic positivity who I get, you could call it maybe more pessimistic or at least more realistic, and they took very strict precautions early on. An example is Vietnam. Vietnam has really, I think, not gotten enough credit for their response to the pandemic, but they knew this was going to hit them. They're right there next to China. There's a lot of trade back and forth. They knew that shit was going to hit them, and they knew that they don't have the, the resources in their hospitals, the ICU beds, to like put everybody on a ventilator, so they shut down everything super early and imposed very strict mask requirements and just dealt with it head on. And as a result, they have an incredibly low infection rate. And I, they reported zero deaths, which is shocking. Sure. And absolutely like kudos to them. And God, I really wish we would learn from them. <laughs> yeah. I wish we were that smart. Um, Same. Now there was a study I saw that found that horror fans, people who like kind of bleak, heavy, scary media, are actually handling the whole COVID-19 pandemic way better than everybody else. So zombie movies, I think, taught us a lot about dealing with plagues. <laughs> Absolutely. We see, like, okay, that person's infected. Let's not go near them. <laughs> yeah. And also the idea of, like, oh, I'll be fine. No, you won't. Exactly. You can't just hide the zombie bite. Like, no, that... That's going to end up bad for everybody. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Why'd you do that? <laughs> yeah. But the thing I'm thinking of a lot is Dracula. And in so many adaptations of Dracula, you know, they put the 
garlic up all around. I think Mina or Lucy, but there's always a scene where some idiot goes like, I'm sick of all this garlic. It smells bad. I can't breathe. I'm getting rid of it. <laughs> oh, look, it's the anti-maskers. <laughs> And, yeah, breathe. exactly. I don't feel like it. I don't like it. And then you get dracula Right. No one wants to get dracula Well, well I some, guess people some people do. want to get dracula <laughs> Yeah. I would prefer that over COVID-ed, but, you know. So something you mentioned early on is the sense of realism. Now, in real life, a lot of the time, we don't get happy endings. Absolutely. Right. But I've heard people suggest, well... What's wrong with the lack of realism? I mean, it's fiction, right? It's fake. So why not be unrealistic? A big part of this is, is like, let's use Disney as an example, the happily ever after. Like, mm. relationships take work. They take communication. They, it just doesn't say this like, yeah, we're in love forever. Hooray. No, there's going to be issues down the line. Right. And the real happily ever after is technically death. Like, that's the end of it. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not like they're going to live forever. Right, and we never see I that guess. in Disney films unless they happen to be the parent and then they are killed off. Right. They never get old, nobody ever gains weight, nobody ever gets like a weird mole. Exactly. You know? No one ever gets a bad haircut or even just like, all right, fine. Right, right. You know, the Prince Charming never gets too into fantasy football. <laughs> <laughs> It's just too perfect. And I understand the need for some kind of escapism and the fact that, well, it's fiction, it's not real. But a way I think of it is it's kind of akin to like overly perfect bodies in media. Like we all know how it's kind of bad for you to constantly be overexposed to media where everybody's physically flawless. Everybody's like super thin and gorgeous. Everybody has a six pack all the time. Like it fucks up your body image. It makes you look at your perfectly normal self and go like, oh my God, I'm disgusting. I'm a beast. And and that leads to can lead to really bad habits, disordered eating, or the opposite, just saying, oh, fuck it. I'm never going to look like that. It's cookie time forever. <laughs> I tend to think that maybe there's a similar thing with relentlessly positive stories with happy endings all the time. You start thinking to yourself, hey, I didn't win. My story didn't end up happy. So maybe I'm bad. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Even though there's nothing wrong with you. You're just normal. You don't win all the time. Exactly. And like I'm going to use an example of my real life. I run and I've done like half marathons and things like that. I don't win, but I still completed it. That's what matters right. to me. But like, right. I'm certainly not going to be first place. I never will. Unless it's against, right. I guess, some geriatric patients. And that's kind of cruel. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, just completing it is still like, that's still fucking awesome. Like, that's a lot of running. It is. <laughs> it is. That's what, a half marathon, that's what, 10, 11 miles? Uh, 13.1. Jesus. Yes. Like, it's certainly something you train for you, you don't just like wake up and like i'm gonna go let's all right let's do this yeah like i don't i definitely could not run 13 miles like dead last or not i just a good not a few minutes in and i'm like no nah, t- that's enough for me i gotta <laughs> no, sure my feet hurt <laughs> but i mean even if you look at the elite ones who are doing like five minute miles or something ridiculous and mm-hmm. even just watching them make those records and things like that maybe they don't win an award but that's still something of like you you did something amazing i couldn't do that so yeah 
Yeah. Like sometimes you don't win and sometimes bad stuff happens to you and it's not your fault and you can't fix it. And that fucking sucks, but that's like a huge part of life. And um, I think that's particularly big, particularly stark if we're talking about the stories about marginalized people. Like there's a big push in publishing, uh, especially in speculative fiction for greater diversity, diversity of writers, diversity of characters. And I think that's a good thing. But I kind of think that if you're from a marginalized background and you're telling a story that really reflects your real life, a lot of the time there might not be a really happy ending. Like imagine writing a story, an accurate, historically accurate story about being a gay man in the 1980s. Oh, yeah. There's not a happy ending there. No, generally not. The fucking plague. It was like a genocide or something. It was so horrible. Like the closest thing to a happy ending was some of us lived. Exactly. And that was it. And, yeah. and there's not really a way to sugarcoat that without being kind of fucked up. Like it's, if you were going to portray that decade as a good time for, for gay men, it would be, I think, kind of disgusting in a way. Like when you try to do that shit, you end up with something like Disney's Song of the South. Where you've got, like, a black man on a southern plantation singing about how happy he is and how cool it was in the antebellum south. Like, it's really fucked up to do something like that. Oh, absolutely. And even (laughs) there's a reason Disney put that away. Like, even Disney just went, no. (laughs) No, that's gross. (laughs) I mean, any, any sensible historian looks at that and goes, no, no. Yeah, you absolutely have to. It would be doing a disservice if you were to look at any time from... A marginalized person of let's go back to the hiv example of like no this was horrible you probably knew multiple people who died yeah yeah i mean i think there was a 10-year period in the village voice where every single issue had a an obituary section just a massive obituary section and this was just a small local newspaper that catered oh, wow. to like gay people who were young the day that they had an issue with no obituaries in it. It was like, holy fucking shit. That was their cover story. No one died this week. Wow, that is horrifying. Yeah, it was just, it it was such a bad time. And the idea of like, I don't know, the idea of a writer trying to write about that time in a way that's truthful and just being told, this is misery porn, you know? (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, this isn't misery, this is life. It's life and it's cruel to like make somebody who lived through a thing like that try to suppress it and try to sugarcoat it in order to avoid upsetting somebody else. It's not fair to a person who suffered like that. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of makes me think of like those plantation tours in the South where they try to like, yeah, it was great. But like any person of color just be like, no, it wasn't. No. And, and I think it is kind of telling of, like, what history we kind of sugarcoat and which ones we don't. And it ties, I think, to the way, like, who who it's still acceptable to oppress, who it's still acceptable to hate. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, Christopher Columbus statues and this whole, like, watering down of history. I mean, there, there's another story. How do you tell that story with a happy ending in a way that's, like, really truthful? I, I don't know. It's... It's fucking heavy, man. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the only way to tell it happily would be strictly through Christopher Columbus's point of view, I guess. But I guess, for everybody or, else that yeah. was involved, no. 
Right. It was just, oh, God. Uh, or, or maybe, like, this guy survived. <laughs> Everybody else got <laughs> fucked, though. Like, which right. isn't... I mean, that's a quote-unquote happy ending, like, in survival horror. Like, okay, Raccoon City got nuked, but at least, you know, Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield made it out alive. And, like, that's it. That's the best you can do for that. And it's, and it's so <laughs> heavy, and it's kind of mean to tell people they can't write about that in, a, in an accurate way without it becoming, like, misery porn. I'm going to be very interested to see what novels and media comes out about the pandemic times, you know, assuming oh, yeah, it's... we do get this under control without, you know, wiping out the country or something. But, like, will the media also be trying to sanitize it of, like, no, everything was happy and there were no protests and things like that? <laughs> right. Or, like, well, whose story is it going to tell? Is it going to tell the story of a couple of rich people who were able to, like, really completely self-isolate because they're wealthy and they're... They have their bunkers or whatever. Yeah, some rich person in an apocalypse bunker, very safe, you know, versus like some poor grocery store worker who's still got to go to work and right. deal with the customers who refuse to wear masks because they have their rights. God damn it. And they're, they're Americans like actively spitting on them or things like that. Just out of spite. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So going from toxic positivity into realism, I, I, we touched on something kind of similar to this. The just world fallacy. Now, the just world fallacy is pretty much what it sounds like. It is the misconception that the world is just, that life is fair, and that means that bad things really only happen to people who deserve it, and good things really only happen to people who deserve it. And obviously, that's a bunch of shit. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's an actively harmful belief system. Like, this is the mindset that makes people look at a rape victim and ask, like, well, what was she wearing? Right, or was she drinking, or why would she walk yeah. down that alley alone, or whatever. Right. But Because the idea that something so terrible could happen to somebody who did not deserve it, it's, it's such a scary idea. It's such an upsetting, uncomfortable idea, so we need to f tell ourselves some way that she brought it upon herself, that she was responsible, that she deserves it. And it's it makes us crueler. Oh, absolutely. And... Like, there's certainly blame to be placed on the media for, again, the sanitation of, like, our fairy tales mm -hmm. and things like that. Thank you, Disney. Yeah. But there is a weird, uh, just kind of like a base mindset, I feel, in humanity. We tend to be very black and white, and when we think about things, if, like, that's good, that's right. bad. They're male, they're female, et cetera, et cetera. And, unfortunately, life defies categorization. Mother Nature defies categorization. It just gives you the middle finger. It's like, nope, categorize this. Like the duck-billed platypus. What the fuck is it? I don't know. Exactly. Or even if you just, if you speak to like a geneticist and talk to like how gender is formed in humans, you'll get like a two-hour lecture. It's not simple at all. Now, we're all sensible people for the most part. We understand that we're, when we're watching a movie, this isn't real. But I do think that 
over and over again, these happy endings can kind of reinforce the just world fallacy. There are studies that show that the media you consume does affect your view of the world. And if you just keep seeing relentlessly like optimistic, happy endings where the good guys win, the bad guys lose, I really think that can affect your view of the world. Well, the world is fair. The world, some, something's got to give, something good's got to happen. Just as when you watch a lot of movies, you realize like, okay, these aren't realistic bodies. These people are unusually attractive, but it still does kind of affect your body image. Even, even though deep down, you know, like, okay, that guy does four hours of Pilates a day with a super personal trainer. I'm a normal person with a desk job. I'm not going to look like that. It still kind of sticks its way in there and it still kind of fucks you up. Oh, absolutely. And I certainly have body issues. Probably every woman in the United States at the very least has body issues. Every woman does. And probably a lot of men too. Oh no, it absolutely has been affecting them more and more, particularly with like the superhero movies that have come out with the, they've been dehydrated for days, but so you can see every muscle on them. (laughs) Right. Right. Like that Zac Efron thing where people are like, I can't believe how different he looks. Like, yeah, he looks awesome now. He looks way hotter. The after picture, he looks like a human. Right. He looks like a man who's capable of having fun. Yes. (laughs) You look like a real human as opposed to a mannequin. Yeah. And I find, and I'm going off, I'm I'm thirsting now about like scruffy Zac Efron. But like post weight gain, you know, Zac Efron, like he just, he looks more human, and I feel like there's more of a sensuality to a person who looks like they're actually capable of pleasure. Yeah, versus sure. Versus the severely dehydrated ab monster person. Like, yeah, they're working out, but like, you know, they're fucking miserable. Right. You know, you can't you can't go to dinner with that guy. You can't go to drinks with that guy. He'll be like, I can't eat. I can't have the carbs. I can't have the carbs and alcohol. I'm sorry. I have to eat like one sardine and a leaf, and that's it today. That's all I got for you. Exactly. <laughs> like. like- Post-weight gain Zach Efron, like, hey, let's go get french fries. Hooray. Yeah, let that us, sounds awesome. Let's, let's eat pizza and make out. I, oh, God, I think he's fucking hot now. <laughs> <laughs> so good. But anyway, getting off topic uh, with beardy Zach Efron, with, with, oh, scruffy Zach Efron. Um, I, I really do think that these, this relentless onslaught of unambiguously happy endings can kind of make you look at your own life and when you don't succeed you think like well what's wrong with me exactly and it's we because of media doing this we have this weird like background radiation of like yes good guys will always win again no they don't just look out on social media or you know the presidency etc or or read a fucking history book (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that too <laughs> read a post middle school history book dude <laughs> yeah just read anything that looks at the world yeah. even just looking at a science book right. you can be like all right yeah there's there's messed up stuff here going on right there's a wasp that can only reproduce by shoving its eggs into a caterpillar and then the eggs eat their way out that can't that's not great <laughs> again not mother great. nature just being like don't care. <laughs> There's nothing cool about or normal about that. That's ugh. Anyway, I've also moving on. I've also heard people suggest that yeah, I know they're not realistic, but I kind of need escapist fiction, escapist media with relentlessly happy endings for self care. Like, hey, I understand that right now. Life is hard. The real world 
sucks a lot and I totally understand. I'm going to put on a fluffy movie and forget about the real world for a couple hours. I get that. Like, Absolutely. I, I do that occasionally. I, I think my self-care right now is watching The Floor is Lava. <laughs> and it, uh, to a certain extent, yeah, there's some self-care that is important and necessary just so you can function. Just like take a load off and, and cheer up for a little while. But there's an issue with self-care. Like I feel like as a society, we've emphasized self-care as the solution to everything. And it's a very individualistic, a very consumeristic solution to what are structural problems. Like uh, an example is if you're having a lot of stress at your work, you know, self-care would be like take a hot bath sometimes, do some breathing exercises at the office. Whereas a structural solution that is sort of group oriented and gets to the heart of it might be organizing for better working conditions. Absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, capitalism has really taken self-care to a very consumerist, you know, consume yeah. level, where it's like, hey, buy this face mask so you can chill out after work. Like, okay, cool. If you want to do a face mask, that's cool, whatever. But you absolutely do have to be looking at, like, is this actually helping me? Like, right. you know, looking into your office conditions. Or I took a class basically on happiness, it was a free course hmm. that I was like, I'm bored. I'm in quarantine, so let's do that. Okay. And they talk about the things that truly make you happy, which is not, you know, items, money, etc. Right. It's more of like, you know, meditation or like kindness, reaching out to a friend, taking a walk in nature, exercise, sleep. So like right. doing something like that and savoring being in the moment, being mindful, that's going to help you feel happier than, you know, buying the face mask or the bath bomb. Right, right. And self-care, I mean, the root of it is the word self. It kind of becomes this narcissistic me, 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 instead of encouraging you to, like, meet other people. Well, maybe meeting other people isn't a great idea right now. <laughs> but to connect with other people in some socially distant, appropriate, safe way and sort of help other people. Like a thing that I found very helpful during the pandemic is helping other people. I've been doing like some volunteer work at a food bank. And for me, that's done a lot more to sort of help my mental health than like stretching. <laughs> no, absolutely. And lipstick. <laughs> you know, charity work is a great way to increase your happiness as well. That was also spoken of in the class. But yeah, like working towards some sort of change will ultimately right. make you feel better than lipstick or et cetera. Right, right. And while I understand the desire to sort of escape the real world, because the real world sucks sometimes, <laughs> I, I think it can kind of become this vicious cycle. Like the real world sucks, so you escape to happy media. And then everything in it is so good and beautiful and perfect and wonderful that in comparison, the real world even looks just shittier. It looks even worse. So then you're even less able to deal with it. So then you need to rely on escapist media even more. And it just keeps going and going and going. And it's like this addiction. And, and yeah, it's a positive feedback loop of, all right, right. Let's just keep going. Like, let's watch another romantic comedy since my love life still sucks or whatever. Yeah. And something that strikes me is that I've heard the I need escapist entertainment thing the most from like financially stable white women. <laughs> and wow. I'm like, what the fuck are you escaping from? Like, was brunch bad? What the fuck? Like, 
you're fine. Fucking do some volunteer work. Come on. Right. Take take a look <laughs> beyond your immediate surroundings. Of Look at the people that are suffering yeah. or things like that. I, right. This kind of sounds like a turf who will not be named complaining about being bullied <laughs> on Twitter when people are just pointing out like, no, trans people are people. Yeah. Sit down. <laughs> also, like, there's a pandemic. There's... There's bigger shit to worry about. You could be writing checks to organizations that are helping people. Absolutely. You have millions of dollars. Doing some real (laughs) cool shit. You could be helping people and talking about that. You could be... If you want to talk about, like, oppression, you could talk about the massive Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and the horrifying fascistic crackdown on that. You could talk about that. But no, people are mean to me on Twitter. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> my feelings okay. were hurt now this is where i sound a little tin foily go for it but i don't think it's a coincidence that our increasingly like monopolized mass media in which a very small handful of mega corporations control almost all of what we see in movies on tv and most big blockbuster scripts have to get U.S. military approval. I'm not kidding. Most of the Marvel movies have, like, U.S. military approval because you get access to, like, fighter jets and cool shit if the U.S. military decides that your uh, script is in line with their agenda. I could see it. I don't think the fact that this is the reality we live in and that this keeps giving us these happy endings, I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think that's an accident. I, I think this is this media monopoly, this, I, I guess if you want to call it the military industrial complex, I think they want us to see the world this way for a reason. I think it's very politically convenient for the powers that be if we see the world in this way. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And it keeps the military's budget at the ridiculous amount that it is. Like, even if we just moved a fraction of it, we could solve so many issues. We could have mm-hmm. Medicare for all and stuff like that. We could have a bullet train. We could have a cool train going across the country, cutting back on, like, car use and emissions. And also bullet trains are really, really nice. And airplanes suck. Exactly. But then the air bullet trains are so pretty. Airplanes would complain that airports and all that. Right. Where's our money? But they're also part of the military complex because so many of them house military stuff. If you're seeing the world as just then maybe you don't question, like, well, who's winning? Is it right? Is it right that we have all this power? Is it right that the United States has power over Puerto Rico and can determine sure. what their minimum wage is and whether or not they're allowed to vote? Is is that fair? That, that seems fucking unfair or something. Is it right that we have, I don't know, military bases in places that don't really want us? Like, maybe that's not right. Like, yeah, we won against those guys, um, but... Is that, are, are, are we the baddies? <laughs> I mean, for so many, we actually are. Like, think back yeah. to, like, Vietnam. All the right. terrible things we did there. Or just look yeah. at pretty much any South American country that we've probably caused a coup or something. And put right. someone who was much worse in power, but because they were friendly and not communist. You know. Yeah. Bolivia is Good the, the recent example that infuriates me so much. There was a lot of uh, a lot of really questionable allegations of electoral, I don't know, impropriety. But the the resulting coup has put a blatant white supremacist in power. 
And the guy who was in power before, uh, Evo Morales, was like the first indigenous ruler of the country. He was such a boon to the indigenous indigenous people and their rights. He was really like pro-environmentalism. He, The economy just grew enormously while he was in charge and wow. without like a massive income inequality. His reign was really, really good for the common Bolivian. And we replaced him with a woman who says that indigenous people are demons. Wow. Wow. Like That's... blatantly a fucking white supremacist. Yeah, that's exactly what I expect that, from America, actually. That's not the good guys winning. And it's just, it, it's horrible. And thinking about it, it makes you very sad. But it's like, this is a thing we need to confront. Because if we ignore it, we keep allowing it to happen. Exactly. We, we keep making excuses for it. Right, and we've refused to face it head on. Like, we don't yeah. really go much into South American history when you, you're taught world history. The fact that you have to be taught world history in like 10th grade and that's it as opposed to right. the American history, which is forever in schooling. <laughs> right. And and something that strikes me too is um, downer endings can genuinely change people's political opinions and influence society for the better. Like back in the eighties, you know, they had the threat of mutual assured destruction, the threat of giant nuclear war. Sure. And one thing that genuinely made Ronald Reagan kind of, come back from the brink and start pushing toward disarmament treaties was a cheesy made-for-TV movie about a nuclear holocaust in the United States. And I've, I've seen, I think it was called, was it The Day After Tomorrow? Which I forget the title, but it, I, I've seen some of it and it's very 80s. It's very TV. It's <laughs> super corny, really bad special effects, but it's just this incredibly bleak series about like these nice young people. Uh, some of them die and some of them get radiation poisoning and some of them like suffocate or, or they eat something that's irradiated and just mm -hmm. society is just crumbling and watching this on TV made the fucking president of the United States decide like maybe global nuclear war is a bad idea. That, uh, wow. <laughs> it, it's sad that that was necessary, but like, if that had ended with some happy ending, it'd be like, oh, never mind. Global nuclear war rocks. We'll be fine. It's cool. Exactly. Let's do it. It's great. Let's press that button. I, mean, I kind of wonder now if, like, <laughs> had we made, like, a a movie about, like, the HIV epidemic, maybe he would have actually done something? Yeah, maybe. Instead, we ended up with a rent. Ugh. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's what we got. Like, sing about it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Nah. I feel like... The guy who wrote Rent was an HIV-positive man who did eventually die of it, so I feel bad in that aspect. But yeah, Rent's not a great representation. It's not the best. It has not aged well. No, I not at say. all. It Especially aged well because all. everybody just looks at it like, these guys are just not paying their rent. Why? Just pay your rent. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's very Gen X versus a millennial is watching it. It's like, your mom's on the phone just to tell you she loves you. Why are you upset about this? For real, yeah. <laughs> so much. Like, so much she's that just saying, I hope you're anymore. okay, sweetie. Exactly. And they're like, oh, fuck you, mom, for caring if I live and die. <laughs> and their art is terrible. <laughs> yes. It's bad art. <laughs> You gave up a nice, secure lifestyle to make terrible art, buddy. Yeah. Oh man, the the performance art that like Maureen does—it's wow. It's like you you give it's artists really a bad. bad name. Stop it. 
You gave up a nice apartment for this. Fuck you. You fool. You could do this on the weekend. This is a hobby. It's fine. Right. And you're living in this big artist space that, like, your friend gave to you, basically, but you're not going to pay him, like, the the rent? Why? Yeah, it's not like there's squatters in some, like, luxury condo made by some evil real estate developer, right? It's like, basically, they're the douchebag who's been couch surfing on their friend's apartment for way too long and won't help out. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> like, the guy who's like, yeah, you can stay with me a while till you get on your feet. And then, like, six months later, he's still there just eating all the food in your fridge. And you're like, I'd, I'd like you to get a job. And they're like, come on, man. <laughs> not all of us are slaves to the system. By the way, we're out of peanut butter. Yeah. God fucking damn, no. Those people, like, I refuse to get a job because it's part of the system. Like, I get that, but you still need to pay bills and stuff. You eat a lot. You're expensive. Please leave. (laughs) I'm not going to say the whole quote here. I'll probably put it at the beginning of the podcast, but... I think it's worth thinking about K.A. Applegate's letter to fans who didn't like the downer ending to her Animorph series. <laughs> and um, I, some some fans wrote saying, oh, how come you ended the series so ba- so sad? All these characters that I liked didn't end up together and people were miserable. And she said, wars don't end happily. Not ever. And she's absolutely right. K.A. Applegate's a fucking badass. I love her. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the Chad K.A. Applegate. <laughs> yes. Oh. Much prefer her to uh, some of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. yeah, she's absolutely right. Like even the the war that was you know good and bad, where uh, World War Two, we're like okay, we're all in agreement. Nazis were bad. We dropped a nuclear bomb on Japan. Yeah. Like and even like the victors come home just totally shattered. Oh, absolutely. We talked about PTSD a little bit more recently, and we talk about PTSD a lot more with Vietnam, but, like, World War II veterans, man, they had some fucking problems. Oh, yeah. Drinking, domestic violence, just total inability to emotionally connect with their children. Like, yeah, it fucked them up. Even when they won, it fucked them up. It's hard. It's bad. War is horrible. You will see horrors. There's a reason why there's things called war crimes and such. Yeah. Was it World War II or World War One when we started doing mustard gas? Because I think that was World War One. Yeah. Either way, we probably used it in, in the sequel as well, and that it, yeah. it's just yeah. horrible to hear what that stuff even does. If, even if you were justified and followed all of the rules of engagement and didn't commit war crimes and won, you're still gonna get fucked up because people seeing people die sucks, and having to shoot another person really fucking sucks. Even if they're Nazis, it fucking sucks. So right. like. And, and I respect Kay Applegate for, for considering that when writing that. She, she wasn't just making entertainment. She's saying, like, look, if I, if I tell the story of a war that's, like, unambiguously cheerful, what message am I sending to these kids? Absolutely. Because these kids are going to vote someday. Right. And maybe that's why our generation is what we are to an extent of just there, like, eat the rich. Let's get these people out of power. Right. Let's defund the police. Let's look into why our military budget is what it is. Like, do you really need right. $5 billion to make one fighter jet? Probably not. Something I do want to point out, the Hayes censorship code it, that was proposed in, I think, the, the 1930s, but during the mid-20th century, the film industry was really tightly controlled by this censorship code, the Hayes Code. And the Hayes Code really tamped down on open depictions of sexuality, open depictions of queer characters. You really couldn't have an openly gay character in movies in the 1950s. 
I think it was until the 60s or 70s that that started like opening up a little bit more. I mean, you couldn't even have an interracial relationship. Oh, you couldn't. Yeah. Right. Which really messes with a lot of uh, films of Othello, which is why we see a lot of blackface back in the day of just like, why did a Laurence Olivier do this? Like, he's better than this. But it's because of these miscegenation laws, the part of the Hayes Code and all that. Right. And and one big part of the Hayes Code was that you have to have a happy ending in which justice is served. You can't show the bad guys getting away with it. And the fact that this extremely conservative, anti-queer, racist censorship code also mandated happy endings. Like, I think there's something to that in a very, very big way. Again, I do not think that that is a coincidence. I think it's deeply conservative. And I mean, in like a small C conservative way to demand happy endings because unhappy endings tell us that life is not fair. And that's really subversive. It's saying, well, maybe things should be different. Maybe we need to fix things. Maybe we need to change things because the way things are now isn't good enough. Right. Because if we believe in this just world fallacy, then we'll think, hey, everything's going to turn out okay. Going back to toxic positivity and all that. Of, But no, we need to look at what's going on. Right. We have these symptoms. We now need to look at the disease and how to get it out. We have a lot of uh, media in YA, especially about dystopias and revolutions, right? Like Harry Potter was sort of, I know, you know, she who must not be named the, the bad turf writer wrote it, <laughs> but it's about like kids overcoming evil and Hunger Games about people overthrowing evil. And like, we get a lot of these revolutionary stories. Right. And they do show darkness because it's a dystopia, but there's a happy ending. And we get this sort of catharsis, right? Like, obviously, because we feel like we're living in a dystopia, we're drawn to dystopian media. But these dystopias give us this triumphant, just happy ending. And we get this sense of catharsis. But I'm thinking, like, maybe we shouldn't get that catharsis from movies all the time. Maybe we should get it from real world action. And I'm starting to wonder if all of these like happy revolution movies, they kind of sublimate that catharsis. They sort of take away that catharsis and give us a substitution when maybe we should be getting it from real life. Sure. And 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 that's not to say like, go have a revolution. Those are easy. (laughs) because they're super fucking hard and you might get shot there's a good chance you will get shot but i don't think it's like triumphant and and a good thing for us to get that catharsis in so much media i think it's a lot more important and more valuable to sort of almost deny it to us so that we have to do it in real life absolutely and probably a big part of that catharsis with the movies at least it's all so like neatly packaged of just like and then the bad guy's overthrown and the end but like there were systems in place that made the bad guy the bad guy that brought them to this place and it's like well what if the the bad guy the dark lord what if he has children what do you do with those (laughs) you write bad do you go full on like russian revolution (laughs) and shoot anastasia or do you let them live and get what we have they have in italy where mussolini's granddaughter is an elected member of parliament like which right and flip a coin what are you gonna do or, or you get what ha- might get what happens in South America a lot, where the people overthrow an evil dictator, but then it turns out a lot of European and North American business interests 
really liked that shitty dictator. Yep. And don't like this new guy who wants to build hospitals, so they uh, fund a coup. Like, maybe would would does Katniss Aberdeen have to deal with that? I don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe Pan Am is the way it is because they mine coal really, really cheaply, and some other countries and and other like international businesses really want to keep things that way. Maybe this whatever equivalent of the CIA is in the future is gonna fucking launch a coup. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they kind of touched it in the books barely. And it would have been smarter to like dig into that more instead of just, we made a prequel about President Snow, I think was the newest one. <laughs> right. But yeah, I would love to see more digging into of the actual nitty gritty of it because that could help us understand. Of like, all right, so... Because we do get a lot of our problem solving from fiction, I feel. So if we see something similar, we can be like, okay, so maybe that might happen. Again, this kind of goes back to the horror people know what's going to go down in a plague. Of like, all right, yep. we know what to do. Yep, We know what happens when you take down the protective thing that just because it's uncomfortable, you're Dracula or, or COVID-19, you're going to get one of those. Exactly. <sighs> and you can't just like remove the one bad guy. There, There's that system in place that put him there. We should probably look into that as well and dismantle that. Yeah, and, and I think we've we've gotten into it so much. Like, it's gotten to a point where symbolic gestures have replaced meaningful progressive political actions. Like, um, after the first surge of, like, the first couple of weeks of protests, a bunch of... TV companies took their old reruns of blackface episodes out of rotation. Sure. It's like, okay, but what does that accomplish? Do you have, like, have, have you dealt with the racism in your own organization? How about the fact that, like, you know, everyone on the board of directors at the company is, is white? Or how about the, is there an institutional tolerance for, like, racially insensitive microaggressions? Like, are, what kind of meaningful shit are you doing Oh, we took a, we took out this old episode of Golden Girls. Like what? Right. And no one asked for that. Nope. And actually, that no one asked for that. It wasn't even really a blackface joke. It, yeah. No one in the marches was holding a sign that said like Betty White must pay for her sins. <laughs> like no one was asking for this. Exactly. And you and you see it everywhere. Like somebody uh, smashed Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and people joked like, "Ah, you defeated one of the Horcruxes." It's like, okay, that's cute, but like that won't actually do anything. This is a minor inconvenience. How are you going to build real world power to deal with this? Absolutely. And of course, you know his ultimate Horcrux is his hair. So how are you going to destroy that? Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, again, it comes to, like, we have to look at the systems. We Like, symbolism is nice, but it doesn't do anything. Right, right. And I found there doesn't seem to be a correlation between people who like these happy, like, cozy revolutionary stories and between people who actually support or carry out direct action. Like, a whole lot of people who rooted for Harry Potter, who rooted for Katniss Aberdeen, got really mad at the rioters fucking up the target or setting a police car on fire. It's like, well, what do you think Katniss would do in real life? I mean, she would be shooting arrows at the target. It's got a target sign on it. That is what she would do. <laughs> exactly. But there's not a not a huge correlation between them. They'll, they'll root for Katniss and then be like, oh, but don't break that target. Like, fuck, it's a store. Get a lamp. Who cares? Because where else will they get their Harry Potter merchandise or whatever? But, um... Right. <laughs> it's just... 
so so I have heard it argued that like oh but these happy stories they like kind of inspire people to fight for for justice like I don't think they do I think they offer a really comfortable substitution to the fight for justice it's like I don't know sugar free coke or something it's like all right, you're doing this because you want your Coke fixed, but you're not actually drinking Coke. It's it's a right. bad analogy, but you get what I mean. Like, right? It doesn't inspire you to do direct action. It just like makes you feel good. Like it, it's been my experience working with anti-establishment activists. They're not generally like Potterheads. <laughs> they're they 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 don't tell you what Hogwarts house they belong to. Instead, they're talking about like, yeah, I fucking loved Midsummer. It was awesome. Oh, and they're quoting the lighthouse to each other. They, <laughs> to be fair, they are quoting Avatar: The Last Airbender, the TV show, because that show rocked. Um, I mean, that one actually showed actual revolution, though. So and yeah, that was that was really fucking good. Yeah, for for kids media, like that actually went genuinely went into depth. And if I had children, I would force them to watch that show. But <laughs> Everyone should watch that show. It's just excellent. Everyone should watch that show. It's great. So you've got like American movies where there's the good guys always win. And Americans are like, so, aside from stupid consumer shit where we'll like fight because the McDonald's didn't have the Sichuan sauce that one time. Oh, God. Like, aside from stupid shit like that, we're generally like really docile. Like when, when shit gets really genuinely bad and our government does genuinely horrifying shit, we're still incredibly weirdly polite. Whereas, compare and contrast to French media, it is all bleak as hell. And they throw riots all the time. They're constantly rioting. They're constantly beating up cops. They don't give a shit. They stick up for themselves. When, like when a French airline company laid off thousands of workers, the workers chased the vice president of the company down the street, tore the clothes off his body, and scratched him and beat him. Like, that's they're kind of amazing. amazing. Yeah, yeah, I gotta give them credit for that. Like, the French do not fuck around. They riot for their workers' rights. They riot for everything because they're like, yeah, that that's how you get your rights. By breaking shit. Yeah. Versus when an American company lays off workers, they're like, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to work for you, at least temporarily. Like, what the fuck? We have built in a weird work culture that we... Yeah. And it's slowly changing because companies no longer give a shit, but... Right. And it's literally life and death in some of these places. Like, there was that... There's a big push for Amazon warehouse workers now because the warehouses weren't giving people proper COVID masks and weren't following protocols. And they're like, you're going to kill us. Yeah. So that we can put dildos in boxes. This is fucked. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we're still, we're supposed to be grateful. And I'm sure you've seen like the Amazon propaganda commercials of like, it's like working at Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of like, no. Okay, first of all, a lot of people no. died in Willy Wonka, so... Or yeah, I guess it's, it is like working at Willy Wonka's <laughs> Chocolate Factory and that, like, a bunch of children get ground up and mutilated, so, you know. Sure. <laughs> that, that's a great thing, Well, a crazy, uh, eccentric giggles and sings. Exactly. Like, I, I kind of wonder if, like, Jeff Oompa Bezos Oompa's singing that and... weird tunnel song. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> like, there's no earthly way of knowing... Oh man, oh, it's so creepy but so perfect. Like we need more of that shit in media of just it's like great. this is weird yeah. shit. What is why is this here? Yeah. In the middle, have a nightmare, children. Okay, back to normal. Like what the fuck? Why what? Good. Good. That scene created so many goths. <laughs> yeah. God bless it. 
Ugh. But, like, I do feel like we need more of that kind of shit in children's media. Just, yeah. that was weird. That fucked me up. I Why did that happen? Like, sure, Willy Wonka technically is happy, but you're still left with, like, wait, what, what just happened here? Right, right, right. And... This is something I've talked about on uh, one of the bonus episodes. If we did a bonus episode about uh, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, but seeing sad stories, seeing scary stuff, can actually make people more empathetic. There have been studies about this, where if you see stories where people suffer injustice and don't overcome it, it's kind of like art is an empathy machine, and it's like you've learned to empathize with somebody who isn't sure. like you. And it's really valuable to give people that, e- even if it's tough. Like, it, it, maybe it could be really valuable for somebody who comes from a position of greater privilege to, to experience that kind of empathy through art of, okay, how, what does it feel like to suffer through, you know, bigotry or something like that? And it can give you, like, a really greater sense of how someone innocent can be ruined by it. And, and versus showing them triumph, it can give you the sense of, yeah, life can be hard, but, you know, the good will still triumph. Like, I recently read Toni Morrison's Beloved, which certainly opened oh, my eyes on yeah, a lot of shit. So so. <laughs> and yeah, I know this is talked about a lot, but we do need more representation of these horror stories, because slavery is a horror story. Make no buts about it. Like, yeah, that... It's so, so bad. But to hear it from her voice, as opposed to the the sanitized things we have in history books or museums, like, oh, wow, I understand. Yeah, Toni Morrison's amazing. She punches you in the gut and makes you feel this stuff in a way that you just, for me, I didn't feel it. Absolutely. That way before. Right. And and she's so talented and brilliant. And the fact that she... We, we did a bonus episode on the bluest eye that she doesn't give you the story of triumph. She doesn't give you the story of someone overcoming. She gives you the story of someone who's just completely destroyed by racism and cruelty. And that is a thing that happens to real people. And those real people deserve sympathy and love. And they deserve to have their stories heard just as much as people who manage to triumph under an unjust system. Absolutely. It, I have heard those say that We've recently had a very heated discussion among my uh, book club about racism and you know Black Lives Matter and things like that. Mm. And I've heard someone say, like, just because, you know, these people didn't make it out, well, what about the people who did make it out? What about them? They made it out, but we still have this institution in place that suppresses so many people that chews up so many souls and just spits them out and right. just sets them on this path of, fuck, what do I do? I, I have to survive yeah. somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, those, they're just as human as the people who made it. They're just as human as the people who overcame. Like, and, and it shows the startling lack of empathy. Like, oh, why should I care about these people who, who got chewed up? Like, because they were fucking people. Right. And it's like, how do you think you'd survive? You know, do you think you'd overcome? Like, I probably wouldn't. I'm not that tough. I'd probably get totally crushed. I could I could not handle shit. I'm not <laughs> I am not strong. I I can barely clean my room. I'm just barely a functional adult. Like Sure. This idea of like, oh, am I somehow better than people who didn't manage to overcome their circumstances? I sure as shit am not at all. <laughs> right. 
you know, and, and what's that say about me then? Is like, well, then then am I not worthy? Am I not a person whose whose story de- who deserves to be listened to? Who deserves to be respected? Because I'm not strong enough to overcome like the odds. Right. I don't know. Or like to go with a more recent example of like all the people who have survived COVID nineteen versus all the people who have died. Like just because right. people survive does not wipe out the fact that a lot of people have died or have been left right. with horrible consequences down the line like that new york times article about the woman the young woman the, she was like 20s who had a double lung transplant oh god yeah and not to be a downer but well that's probably appropriate for the episode but double yeah. lung transplants don't have a great life expectancy like maybe 10 years <laughs> oh no that's on average like five to ten is average oh, so maybe she will do super well and live a full happy life and i do hope the best for her but right it's not super likely and and i mean there are kid people have come out of it with brain damage there there are signs there that it might affect fertility too sure so even the kids who get it maybe their lungs will be okay but like hey you want grandkids well tough shit yeah or the the people in their 20s and 30s who are now having strokes because of it right like that sometimes it doesn't leave lasting damages other times it does Right, and it's not purely based on like, oh, well, that guy was unhealthy. I'll, I'll be fine. I'm healthy. Like, no, you're seeing healthy people get like fucked up lungs and stuff. Exactly. And I probably don't look at the the New York Times article because it shows the damage of the lung. But like, even as someone who worked oh. in an ER, was just like, oh my god, no, I will wear a mask everywhere. I will wash my hands every time. Yeah. Yeah, I will scream, get away from me, anytime someone comes near me. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. And bringing it to the end, why don't we talk about a little bit about end-of-life care, too? Because I think this idea of happy endings, it affects our end-of-life care. So many of the people I've spoken to in the medical field have talked about how very often families of the patients can't accept mortality. Like, yeah. they can't accept, like, your 96-year-old grandma who's had five heart attacks is not going to make it. And it's just, like, the stress it puts on them is horrific. Where it's like, you need to take catastrophic life-saving measures to save grandma. It's like, we can sort of keep her alive in a fucking horrible state. Right. Where it's not worth being alive at all, I guess, if you want me to do that. Whereas if you have, I think, a more realistic mindset, you say, like, okay pull the plug oh no absolutely the whole quality of life discussion that doctors have to have all yeah. the time with people like look right. she's on a vent she's never gonna come off like she's not conscious do you really want her to stay like this yeah it is interesting see, hearing it from the patients versus from from families because I, I did work in in healthcare too and just families going like no you have to use heroic measures to keep this person alive versus the person themselves is just like I know I don't got a lot of time left. I'm going to enjoy what time I do. And I'm going to be realistic. I'm 80. I don't have much time left. I'm going to smoke cigarettes and drink bourbon because fuck it. I'm, <laughs> yes. They're not going to kill me. Something else is going to kill me. And it's like, that is the realistic person. And that person's probably going to be a lot happier. Exactly. Um, and suffer a lot less. <laughs> like, there's no sense in, like, in trying to extend your life if it's just going to be miserable. Right. Just going like, yeah, you know, if I go down, don't, don't, d- d- let me go. Let me go. It's fine. I mean, there's a reason. I'll, I, I've lived my life. I've had a good time. A lot of doctors have DNRs already in place. If like, look, if something happens, just no. 
because they know. I'm 90. Kick me out of bed. Put a young person there. I don't care. I'm done. Fuck, I'm so tired. (laughs) Just, oh, God. And, and, And the pain it causes the families, too, like, instead of accepting... Right. What's going to happen? It's just like, oh, were we bad? Would did we fail, Grandma? Like, Grandma was ancient. Grandma was gonna fucking go. You didn't fail. Like, odds are, Grandma left behind specific instructions about this, saying like, no, just let me go. It's fine. Yeah. When you get to a certain age, you usually have those papers in place. Yep. And and preparing for the end, accepting the fact that you will die someday, that saves your family a lot of stress too. Like old people that have like living wills and might even have suggestions about how to do their funerals they're like really saving their families a lot of stress versus the families who have to kind of figure shit out when they're under the worst kind of stress the worst kind of grief and don't really know what to do and just feel guilty and oh is this what she would have wanted i don't know like if you if you are a sensible person and understand okay i have limited time on this earth let me write up a dnr let me write up a living will so that when i go it's not going to be as hard on, on my family because i am going to go i'm not the Highlander. <laughs> right. It, it's gonna happen. Like, it's kind of a bitter medicine. It's like, it's unpleasant to accept these things. It's painful to accept these things, but it really does make things better for others and, and for ourselves in that sort of... And it allows us to accept the real world with with a kind of grace, I think that uh, this sense of toxic positivity denies us. Right, because as we've spoken about before, you know, these emotions exist for a reason. We develop them, we listen to them, and we have to deal with them. Because in the end, the world doesn't care. The world isn't just. Right. The world is what it is. The world is chaos. And kind of the sooner you can accept that, you know, bad shit will probably happen to me at some point. Might not be now, might not be later, but it could be any time. And you just have to accept right. that. I'm kind of grateful for my time in the ER that I worked as a medical scribe because it helped me see of just like chaos can go down at any point. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it changes your perspective dealing with like death openly and directly. It absolutely does. Even just things that weren't death, but of just these injuries that just happened of like, okay, someone bit your lip off. Got it. Wow. That was a real thing. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's kind of a horrific story, so I won't tell it, but just of, like, this is a thing that could happen. Got it. Yeah, I mean, you, you see the weirdest fucking shit happen to human bodies. It was one of my first nights in the ER, too, of just like, holy crap. <laughs> the one story I remember was a guy who'd had open-heart surgery, and this was, like, back in the day where they'd basically open up your whole, you know, chest cavity. They didn't have the, like, more discreet method now where they, like, put this sort of, like, snake in between two ribs. And that was, you just had to, like, open up the whole rib cage and then, like, staple it shut. A dude, after that surgery, had a coughing fit so bad, it opened up. Oh, my God. Like a pair of cowboy doors. It was, that was a bad time. That was, that was a bad time. And I learned that that can happen to a human body. And I have yet to use it in my writing, but I probably will someday because that is the worst thing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That is the worst fucking thing. I got dizzy when I first heard about that family member saying like, well, so that's what I dealt with today. And I'm like, fuck. (laughs) I was not prepared for this over dinner. Thanks. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm fucking eating white <laughs> Jesus. Oh, but finding that human bodies can do that is horrifying, but also oddly fascinating. And yes, that is just like not your fault. You just coughed a lot. Like you couldn't help that, right? But that's a thing that are can happen. Are you a bad person? No, it's just you. You had a Cronenberg day today, <laughs> because that's what's going to happen to you today. Sometimes you just have a Cronenberg day, and it's not your fault. <laughs> I would kind of like to avoid a Cronenberg day if possible. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes Cronenberg just happens. Cronenberg <laughs> happens. So why don't we finish this by, I guess we should do a spoiler alert, I don't know, spoiler alert endings. Ending by talking about some of our favorite sad endings, some of our favorite unhappy or downer endings. Um, and Or we could imagine how shit it would be if they'd tacked on a happy ending. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna try and let's focus on like super famous things and not like ah let's do this movie that just came out because I don't want everyone to go like god damn it fair and, and stop listening to my podcast but um flowers for Algernon yeah yeah the ending is heartbreaking but beautiful right yeah like where he loses his intelligence and I think it's implied that he'll probably die and it's just like it's so heartbreaking yeah absolutely but it's so like meaningful and so many of the publishers that he pushed it to wanted him to give it a happy ending and it'd be like no one would remember this story it'd be some guy took a pill and got smart the end yeah like there's nothing memorable and, about that oh, <laughs> and it's so, it, it's such a great story and and it's just gorgeous and also the idea of like I mean, it's really about, like, power and that you can lose it. Yeah. Which, that's true of all of us, man. Right. We all kind of suffer a decline. Maybe you can lose your money. Maybe maybe if your power is through your looks, you're definitely going to lose that at some point. <laughs> well, just overall, like, your body will fail you at some point. It might be in the form of, yeah. you know, losing, like, Alzheimer's, losing your cognition, or maybe losing your know, paralysis, losing uh, use of your limbs. But... You know, your power, your right. body is going to fail at some point. Even if you like eat a lot of vegetables and, and work out, even if you're vegan or paleo or whatever, there's going to be a point in your life where you pee a little bit every time you laugh. Exactly. And that's just going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Or your knee's going to hurt when it rains or whatever. Yeah. It just occurs. Yeah. One for me, I'm going to go... I don't know if you ever saw the, I think it's like the 70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland. Oh, I didn't see that version. Definitely watch that version because it's the best version because I watched. I tried to watch the 50s version. I'm just like, this is so boring. <laughs> it's really corny. But watching the Donald Sutherland version, spoilers, but downer ending, like everybody gets taken over. And I actually remember seeing this as a child and being freaked Ooh. out for months. Like I could not sleep. Yeah. I just... Plants are going to come from space and take over the people I care about. <laughs> yeah, it's something about movies from the 70s, like, they just make you feel extra bleak. I don't know if it's the color palette or the film stock or whatever, but, like, so many movies from the 70s have this unique power to just kick you in the balls. So many of them also had, like, bleak endings. Like, the 70s, we did have an era of, like, bleaker endings, even in sci-fi oh, yeah. and things like that. And I kind of wonder if that kind of came out of, like our endless wars with Korea and uh, Vietnam. And it was like the party that was the 1960s was kind of coming down. And I don't know. <laughs> the 70s was Let's the collective see. hangover, I guess, maybe. Yeah. When the parties go, I mean, there were, it was fucking cool in a lot of ways, like amazing music and, and, and 
it was a way better time to be gay than the 80s was, for sure. <laughs> sure. But I think people kind of started seeing that the party's going to be over at some point. I think they started realizing that was going to happen, and then, like, the Reagan. Sad endings that are unhappy endings. I mean, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Imagine if Mrs. Hutchinson was just like, no, I'm fine now. Yeah. Like, she catches the rocks and throws them back. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is that story going to be? Or, like, Kafka's Metamorphosis. Like, oh, I'm a human again. Okay. Yep. Everything's happy. I, I was a cockroach for a bit, but it, I got better. He goes on a quest and defeats the sorcerer who made him a cockroach and hooks up with some, like, sword bikini warrior maiden. I don't know. <laughs> Not so yes, much. The chainmail bikini. Let's see. I mean, most Shirley Jackson stories and most Kafka stories don't have, like, a happy ending, which is sort of the point of Kafka. And I love him for it. It's like, and then he died. The end. It's like, okay. Thanks, Franz. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> thanks, Franz. I feel I love uplifted. You. Oh, Toni Morrison, we mentioned her, the bluest eye. It has such a bleak ending, and it's, I think, very courageous of her to take that at a time. And she wrote this at a time when a lot of writers were trying to create these, like, uplifting, optimistic narratives. And she said, look, that, that there is a place for that, but we need to look at this other side of our community. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and we need to look at the other side of life. Right. Like, you need to see what this is doing to me, right. to people right. like me. Dr. Strangelove, I mean, holy shit, brilliant. Yes. And I mean, the whole point, well, not necessarily of Dr. Strangelove, but Doomsday movies were so much about, like, cautionary tales. And a, a tale isn't cautionary if it ends happily. It, it defeats the point. Right. <laughs> That's like so many of those old fairy tales. It's like, no, there, there was cautions and lessons put in here for a reason. And then we took them right. out for entertainment. <laughs> Right, like the original Little Mermaid, like the whole thing is about, you know, don't be, don't try to become someone you're not to make somebody else love you because you're going to be miserable and it's not going to work. And like, that's a really valuable moral. Right, and actually really progressive, all things considered, like from when this yeah. came out of like, no, you can change, but only to an extent. <laughs> And, and I do think part of it, too, is that it was partially about, I think, Hans Christian Andersen was, was gay, and part of it was about him just being in love with a straight man and kind of like... Okay, I could see it. Right, and just like stressing about that and trying to wish yourself into something else or trying to moon over someone who's just not into you. Like, that's a source of suffering. You gotta let it go. That's not gonna happen. You can't turn yourself into a mermaid. We'll, we'll go with the reverse yeah. of this. Right. But... The ends of his fucking sea foam. Don't stab him and his wife. Uh, I guess that's the moral of the story. I don't know. Whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see. I I loved what they did with the ending of the film version of The Mist. Yeah. Like yes. they made it even bleaker so bleak. than Stephen King's <laughs> original novel to the point where even Stephen King told the filmmakers like, "Holy shit, you guys, yeah. that's fucked up. This rocks. Well done." Yeah, like, that's gotta be really high praise coming from King. Oh my god, when I saw it, I'm like, holy shit! That's so good! And I've heard, seen people going like, oh, that's so unfair. I'm like, yeah, that rocks. It just it just kicks you in the face, exactly. the ending of that movie. And God bless them for having the courage to go with that. To just go with the bleakest possible thing. My college roommate would, like, specifically subject people to that film, and she said she's gotten punched <laughs> in the arm multiple times at the ending. 
Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, so good just to see it in an era when like so many movies they they want to please the crowd and it's just like fuck you. <laughs> exactly. Fuck you, crowd. And you know we kind of need to stop doing that of just pandering to the lowest common denominator. Like I don't care if they want it happy. Yeah. If that doesn't fit the story, it doesn't fit the story and it isn't going to work. Yeah. It's like you've had enough cookies, eat a vegetable. You're a grown-up. Exactly. Take your medicine. Come on. If you're coughing so much, <laughs> take your fucking take... medicine. It tastes bad. Take exactly. it. Take your terrible tasting Robitussin. It, it, it's good. Sometimes it's good to be sad and it, sometimes it's good to be bummed out. And I guess that is the thesis of this episode. Uh, we've talked for quite a while, so I think I'd better wind things down sure. so that I can let you go. But before we go, where can our listeners support your work? Uh, currently, you can find my story, The Crowned King, in uh, COVID-19, or it's called The Unknown COVID-19 Charity Anthology. Uh, it's found, you can find it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or any of the big guys. Although, if you want to support an indie bookstore, you should do that too. It can be found there as well. Uh, hopefully, I will have more stuff coming out in future anthologies, but I'm still waiting to hear back. Okay, cool. And, and, and you said that uh, that's a charity anthology? Yes, uh, all the proceeds go to a charity to help local artists. It was put together by a local, well, she's not local anymore. She lives now in Utah, but uh, an author who is trying to help artists and authors in the, we're not really Midwest, what are we? Whatever. Whatever the Colorado, <laughs> Utah, Nevada, etc. area is. That that area, the West. Yeah, pretty much. Ish. Whatever the this West, is. not yet the, the coast. Rockies. We'll go with the Rockies. Yeah, the Rockies. Yeah, all right. Well, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that writers and artists are not having a good time in the pandemic either. It's, it's not a time when people really want to buy art, really, so much. Like, world's on fire. Please buy my painting. Like, uh... Right. No, we got to go for toilet paper <laughs> because toilet paper. Yeah. Which people? We got to buy toilet paper and masks and hand sanitizer and, and, and I don't know. And, and a lot of people are out of work. It's, it's a rough time for a lot of people. Right. Especially for those who can't work, and I can't even imagine trying to find a job in this uh, current situation. Oh, God. Yeah, like, how do you... You can't even shake people's hands in a job interview. Like, what do you do? I don't even think they'd have an in-person interview. It would have to be, like, over the internet, like Skype, Skype etc. Yeah. yeah, Microsoft Teams or whatever. Oh, God. <laughs> Try and do a Zoom interview, and you get, like, Zoom bombed. Yeah. Oh, God, where a bunch yes. of rowdy teens come in and start, like, calling you mean names. Or showing you their butt or whatever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Not a great time for a lot of people. Um, but anyway, I, I think that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And thank you, listeners, for listening. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. Supporters get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, some of my own short fiction, and access to the Kitty Sneezes Discord, where you can suggest episode topics or have group write-in sessions. And be sure to join us next time, when we talk about the art of translation. Until then, keep writing good. Oh, <laughs> my
kittysneezes.com in color.